Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. When it comes to social media, there's no bigger company than Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook. And when it comes to making sense of Zuckerberg and Facebook, no one has done a better job over the last 20 years than my old friend David Kirkpatrick. So when I sat down with David recently to reminisce about the origins of our social media revolution, I began by asking him when he first heard the term social media. David Kirkpatrick, the author of the Facebook Effect and a long-term uh, observer, writer, thinker on technology and on the internet and then social media. David, remember the first time you heard the term social media? Oh gosh, <laughs> I don't really. Um, it probably would have been in the vicinity of 2004-ish. Um, I do remember researching its history when I wrote my book um, and Dana Boyd uh, with a co-author I believe coined that term for a, an article or a book that they wrote and they later wrote a book but um, it was a term that really didn't come into use until you know the early aughts. You say the early aughts David, uh, do you remember where you were 2000? And 11, September 11th. Some people suggest that this was the birth of the social media age. Some people argue that this was the calm, so to speak, before the explosion of social media. Wait, 2000 and what? 2001. Oh, you mean the 9-11? Oh my God, I remember that very well. Uh, I was very near here. Um, and unfortunately, I was standing in the middle of Fifth Avenue and saw one of the buildings fall. So that was a pretty awful period. It did mark a division between epochs in some way, I think. I don't know how it applies to social media, though. How do you think? Well, you went out and you looked on the street. You didn't go onto Facebook. You didn't go onto Twitter. You didn't go onto uh, Instagram because none of those existed. Right. It was actually one of the things it was, was a pivotal moment in the history of texting. Because at that time, most Americans didn't text that much, but uh, many of the people who were caught in the tower and even on the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania were able to text their friends and relatives even as they were about to die. And that was very historic and sad and noteworthy. So it, I think it actually contributed to the launch of public acceptability of texting. And partly also because text could be cued and the, it was impossible to make a phone call at that time. But texts were going through because they got queued in the internet and got only delivered when the system was able. David, you, you had a long and still continue a long distinguished career in mainstream media. You worked for many different magazines and you started Techonomy, a mainstream uh, events uh, business around uh, technology. Do you remember the birth of blogging? What did you think when you first heard the, the term blog? And, and who were the first bloggers you came across? 
Well, I've actually never liked the term blog. I think it's a very ugly word, and I, I've always tried not to use it just personally. But I wrote a big article about blogging for Fortune that was a cover story. And again, that was probably in the range of 2004. Um, I remember Dan Roth edited it, who's now at LinkedIn. Uh, we worked on it very closely together. Um, blogging got sort of blurred with a lot of other things at that time, but certainly blogging was a critical precursor of social media. Uh, I remember getting to know Joy Ito, who was uh, running, I think, Six Apart at that time, uh, which was a blogging company. Uh, I visited their offices when I was reporting that story. Um, so it was, it was a, a, a very fast-changing landscape even then. But you got the feeling at that time that people were sort of trying to get their footing in a new form of communication. And, you know, blogging was taking a variety of different forms and uh, defining it was proving to be a little challenging to people. But obviously it was uh, something that caught on, shall we say. Some people saw blogging, people like uh, our mutual friend Jeff Jarvis, as a challenge to mainstream media, to top journalists like yourself. Was there some truth to that back then? Uh, did it feel as if a grenade with, with blogging, the explosion of blogging, that fortune cover story you wrote in 2004, did it seem as if a grenade was being hurled into the, the offices of traditional newspapers and magazines? I'm always reluctant to talk about grenades being hurled into traditional media. Um, uh, My words, David, not yours. But but I, I, I think yes. No, it's uh, it, as a good Quaker. I know you're not. Keen no, on it's not that I don't. I actually, metaphors. I've always personally been biased towards mass media. Even today, I get the Times, FT, Wall Street Journal on paper. Uh, I am a baby boomer in my sensibility. I don't deny. But. Um, it was, you know, I, I honestly think that the threat to mass media became more evident to me once I started focusing in on Facebook. But um, yes, blogging was the one of the first extremely visible manifestations of this phenomenon of the power going to the individual, you know, publishing emerging from the bottom up. Um, you know, in a society that historically had been a society of Walter Cronkite's pronouncing to the masses, uh, we were beginning to see with blogging the beginning of a reversal where the power was shifting to the other pole of, of the equation. We talked about 9-11 and 2001. You mentioned you wrote the blogging cover story for Fortune in 2004. Did something happen between 2001 and 2004, David? Or was it the, the slow build-up of user-generated content and uh, uh, eventually what became known as social media? Or are there other, any other events at the, in I, the early noughts that, that, you, that, 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 that resonate still with you 20 years later? I'm not sure I can name a particular event or pivotal day. But there's no question that from, say, 2001, 2004, 2005, there was a very rapidly growing sense that the communications landscape was shifting in the direction of the individual. And that was a very big, big change that continued and accelerated as other developments happened later. 
Um, but it felt like something fundamentally new, no question. You said it was shifting towards the individual. Where was it shifting away from? The organization, the institution? Well, it was shifting away from the you know, ecosystem of a small number of trusted um, gatekeepers of information, uh, which in American media up to that time had really been a fairly small community uh, dominated by the New York Times, which for much of my early career really was the place that pretty much all of media took its cues. I mean, the New York Times was astonishingly dominant in those years. I remember I used to work, uh, one of my first jobs at Time Inc. was as a uh, intern correspondent in the New York Bureau of Time magazine. This would have been in about, um, uh, when was it, uh, I don't know, 1990-something, um, early 90s. Uh, no, no, it was late 80s, mid, mid to late 80s, sorry. In, in the late 80s, I was an intern in the New York Bureau of Time magazine, and, uh, no, sorry, can I start that again? Yeah. Because uh, actually I'm getting the dates right. Okay, now, about 1983, I was interning in the New York Bureau of Time magazine, and I remember attending the Monday morning story meetings for the New York Bureau of Time, and the way those meetings happened was that every correspondent, and these were quite eminent journalists, would come to the story meeting with clips from the New York Times. That's how they decided what a story was. Honestly, I would say at that time, more than half of the stories that Time Magazine did out of the New York Bureau were precipitated by something the correspondent had read in the New York Times. That's how dominant the New York Times was. So clearly, we had a set of gatekeepers. Right, we also still had Walter Cronkite and such characters at the you know, apex of broadcast journalism. The idea that ordinary people could be sources of information to the masses was unheard of. So David, as I said earlier, you authored uh, Facebook Effect. You're one of the world's leading authorities and observers of, of the history of Facebook. Do you remember the first moment you heard the term? You heard about this, this, this thing called Facebook, this social network as it's become known? I'd heard a few things from colleagues at Fortune. Uh, one of my colleagues, Adam Lashinsky, uh, wrote an article about uh, Zuckerberg having a business card that, had, that said, I'm CEO, bitch, uh, which was noteworthy that we were getting sort of, again, uh, sort of insurgents at the barricades of a traditional business and media that, that somebody who was running a company that could be given any seriousness would actually have such a business card. I'm sure that's why Adam felt it was a good story. Uh, that was one of the first times that I was made aware of Facebook, although it was starting to get discussed a lot as an impressively fast-growing college student service. And that was almost universally the only way it was understood, but it was growing very quickly, and that was impressive. How did you come to be to be known as, uh, it's my term, David, Mr. Facebook. I don't, I'm not Mr. Facebook. Well, you're certainly one of, you, you wrote this very influential book. I was you a, were given access well, I'll you, to I'll Zuckerberg and to the, the, the senior people. I'll uh, tell you what I was. I was the first major business journalist who took Facebook with consummate seriousness as a potentially massive phenomenon. Up to the point when I started writing about Facebook, most journalists really thought that Facebook was, you know, a very impressive but very niche
business for students and not really worth taking that seriously. The very first article I ever wrote was called Why Facebook Matters, because that was a declaration I felt needed to be made. What year was that? That was in uh, 2006, September. Um, it came right after meeting Zuckerberg at the very beginning of September 2006 in the midst of the newsfeed controversy. But the, the, the critical thing that happened for me, because I heard, you know, I, I was invited to meet with him by a PR person, and I said, yeah, I'll meet with Mark Zuckerberg, fine. So we had lunch at this uh, restaurant, Il Gatto Pardo, on 54th Street in Midtown. Chris Hughes was there, another young uh, uh, PR person, and, and Zuckerberg came to my table at this restaurant, and as soon as he walked up, I thought, I'm, I'm an idiot that I'm even here. This kid is like, a, he's like my grandson. I mean, he seemed so young, and Chris Hughes seemed even younger. Uh, but the, the minute he opened his mouth, I started paying attention because the thing that happened in that interview was that I became deeply impressed with Zuckerberg's seriousness and his vision and the scope of his thinking and ambition. And I was really, really impressed. And at one point in that lunch, I said to him, you know, you seem kind of like a natural CEO. And he said, he got, ooh, I, I don't really like business. And business is just a way to get shit done, he said. Um, he didn't want to think of himself that way, but he was already proving that that's what he was. And because I was so impressed with him, I immediately wrote this article, Why Facebook Matters, and that caught his attention, if nobody else's. And uh, then he started sort of feeding me more stuff and trying to get my attention further towards the company and calling me and writing me. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty interesting. And I wrote more about it. I followed it more closely. And one thing led to another, and it was uh, less than, two years later that I uh, decided to write a book about it. You wrote this piece then, Why Facebook Matters in 2006. Was it an article about why Zuckerberg and Facebook specifically as uh, a, a tech internet networking startup matters? Or was it really about why social media matters? I don't even remember if I used the term social media in that article. But we know why. It wasn't in that wide use at that time. But uh, I may have, it was about Facebook. To me, it was about discovering the potential that a company could have what began to seem to me the possibility of a macroeconomic uh, impact and role in changing the relationship between the bottom and the top. And honestly, that was my impression from day one of meeting Zuckerberg, that this guy really could, um, engineer a empowerment of the individual and that was really the way he talked about it and that was the way I got interested in it. But it was a company that was built on the social, whether it's we call it social media or social networks. Sure, social. Yeah. It was premised on the idea of humans as social beings. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah. And the company was rooted in the idea that we, we wanted to socialize uh, virtually on the internet. Well. It was, but you know, one thing, one thing to remember is that at that time, Facebook was intended as a service to communicate with people you knew in the real world only. That was its fundamental design conception was, this was a way to reinforce and strengthen your bonds with people you already knew. Uh, which of course is not what it became over time. But that was to me an important part of what interested me and, and that was absolutely the way that Zuckerberg talked about it. Many people have commented on Mark Zuckerberg's somewhat odd, to, 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 to use a euphemism, social skills, 
Some people have suggested he might even be autistic. Are you arguing that his social skills were actually, when you first met him, were actually more impressive than many people believe? Yes, I, I do. I never really considered him to be socially impaired in my early interactions with him. Uh, in fact, I think he had fairly good social skills. One thing that was distinctive about him was his incredible intensity. You know, he had this way of staring at you while he was speaking, like, you better fucking listen to me, forgive my language. Um, and, uh, but also, he was famous at that time when somebody was talking to him and he wasn't interested in them, to sort of look past them like, oh my God, this is so boring. And he still does that, I think. But um, I did not consider him socially impaired. In fact, I thought he had a pretty good um, personality and it was pretty much fun to hang out with most of the time. Uh, and, and I honestly later came to believe that he was lacking in some key human qualities, honestly. But uh, at that time, before he was a billionaire, before he was an all-powerful CEO and he was just an entrepreneur with a bunch of good ideas, uh, I thought he was a nice guy and very impressive. Did you talk business models when you had that first meeting? Did you have any understanding of how Facebook was supposed to make money, how it was supposed to to use a, a, a word from uh, Silicon Valley, monetize the social? That was, exactly, that was exactly what we talked about in that meeting, was the business models and what he was trying to do, what kind of business he was trying to build. And um, he had a vision then that this could be a vast service for, he didn't use the phrase humanity, but that was coming through the pores of his uh, explanations, that he, he had very little sense of the limits of what his invention could uh, become and um, we, he wasn't really talking about advertising. I, I think at the time, you know, in an early phase of an internet startup at that time, revenue models were not really considered to be very important. Growth, user growth was really all that mattered and it was a business set up on the basis that user growth was all that mattered until later after enough money had been plowed into it and capital invested by VCs, etc., you know, suddenly they had to realize, oh, holy, holy shit, what are we going to do to really make money out of this? And, and Zuckerberg reluctantly came to embrace advertising, but most of that change didn't even come until Sheryl Sandberg arrived because, and I'm not sure Zuckerberg on his own really would have ever been capable of making the shift to being as wholeheartedly an advertising business as they became if Sheryl had not been there to help him. In an old way then, there's a lot of parallels between Google and Facebook where Larry Page and Sergey Brin also didn't have a business model, also traded on phenomenal growth, also were rather hostile actually overtly hostile to advertising then the grown-ups came along Eric Schmidt and built a business model right is uh, do you see Sheryl Sandberg as the Eric Schmidt the grown-up in the Facebook story I don't usually think of her as the grown-up but there's no question that Sheryl Sandberg is the one who led the architecting of the Facebook business um, in my book which was published in 2010 I explained in some detail Zuckerberg's many sort of efforts to fend off what he considered offensive advertising intrusions into his baby, which was Facebook. I mean, I remember, for example, I think it was 7up wanted to have a homepage takeover and turn it green. 
and they were going to pay a million dollars for a one-day homepage takeover, and he rejected that at a time when the company did not have that much money because he did not want it to feel like some kind of commercial landscape. He wanted it to be very strongly feeling like a human place, a place you connected with your friends. So many, many of his employees came to him in those years with what were often quite lucrative business opportunities that would have made ads more prominent in the service in one way or another. And he routinely rejected those uh, ideas. How much uh, personal interaction did you have with Sandberg? I wonder if there is any coincidence between the fact that she came from Facebook. She learned her understanding of from internet Google, business. Uh, yeah, from yeah, Google. Yeah. She, she learned her understanding of internet business from her experience at Google. She worked directly for Eric Schmidt. Oh, yeah. Uh, what is the Facebook model, the business model, and indeed most of the social media business model, is it essentially borrowed from Google? I mean, to some fundamental extent, yes. Uh, Facebook's business model came out of Google in, in that it was, you know, a, an advert-based monetization business. But you know, uh, you know, search is a different business than social media. Sheryl uh, Sandberg had not only been at Google; she had been running its advertising business. I mean, she was the ad expert at Google, and so Zuckerberg pulling her out of there to bring her into Facebook was a huge coup. Uh, it took them like a month and a half of meetings for him to convince her to do it and for him to be convinced that she was the right person. Um, and uh, even when she got there, however, it wasn't transparently obvious how to apply an ad-based model on top of the Facebook ecosystem. And you know, she also allowed the other executives who she met with extensively during those weeks and months to help iterate it so they would find it for themselves to some extent. She did a very good job of leading the company around that time. Zuckerberg went on a backpacking trip for like six weeks. He was in India and elsewhere while she was basically running the show by herself at home. Um, and I remember one of the things she used to do, which I explained in the book, was I think they had a couple meetings where she had a you know, the whole executive team, whiteboard at the front, and on the whiteboard she wrote, what business are we in? That's what the meeting was about. It wasn't obvious. She knew, I think, that it would be a targeted advertising business, and I'm sure the reason she went to Google, to Facebook from Google, was that she saw that Facebook had even better targeting information than Google had, and that used properly, that could be extraordinarily lucrative and extraordinarily beneficial for advertisers. And she proved to be absolutely right about that. You use the term, David, targeting information. That's a euphemism for uh, social behavior, what we like and what we don't like, what we say to our friends, what we see and what we don't see. Yeah. Was there any debate in Facebook, do you think, early on about whether or not this business model would be the final nail or one of the final nails in the, the privacy coffin? I never found a whole lot of evidence in my reporting that there were a lot of people inside Facebook who were had fundamental reservations about targeting ads towards people based on their personal data, except possibly Zuckerberg himself, ironically. And, and maybe Dustin Moskovitz, too, who was you know, really very tight with Zuckerberg at this time, and, and his clear number two in many respects, uh, head of technology, out of Harvard, roommate, etc. Um, I think they were leery of advertising and leery of and not so much abusing personal data 
It wasn't, that wasn't the debate. The debate was more just about the feeling of commerciality that they tried to avoid. I honestly don't think at that time there was an understanding much of anywhere of how pernicious a targeted advertising-based business model could be in social terms. I think we figured that out, unfortunately, by doing it as a society. And, you know, they were the leading practitioner of that over the last 20 years. Uh, Cheryl did architect that. Uh, but I don't think there was a lot of pushback on the fact of targeting, per se. No. Was, and, and the Facebook story is, of course, complicated, lots of different events. Uh, a lot of it's quite controversial. Was the introduction of the Facebook newsfeed really critical, David, in the oh, way yeah. in which the company evolved? Well, the, the introduction of the newsfeed was indispensable to Facebook's growth and, and later success. So, you know, it's ironic that when the newsfeed was introduced... What year was, was that? That was in September of 2006, the very beginning of the month. And it was right at that time that I met him. I know this because, you know, I, I met him like three days after the newsfeed had been introduced. And he was in the middle of combating the pushback. 10% of the users of Facebook at that time were signing petitions and joining pages that were saying, get rid of the newsfeed, because they felt that by automating information about them and sending it to others, which is what the newsfeed did, that it was a violation of privacy. Now, Zuckerberg's response to that was, wait a minute, this was already information you had made publicly available on Facebook. We are just organizing its distribution. People didn't see it that way, many of them. Um, but Zuckerberg, from the minute he launched the newsfeed, knew that the objections would fail because the organization of the protests was being... The people were learning about the protests because of the newsfeed. People would join a protest group and the newsfeed would send around to all their friends, so-and-so has joined the group, let's kill this stupid system, uh, or something like that. And um, so he, he was, I think, you know, kind of smiling quietly to himself that if people are learning to protest by using the very product they're protesting, that meant the product had a long life. And he was right. So with the news feed, do we have the beginnings perhaps of the social media age, social media yeah. being this replacement of the mainstream media world you were part of? Well, a critical factor in what we call social media is the notion of the feed, uh, which is so familiar to us now that it's almost hard to remember that it was ever invented. Um, but really, Facebook was a real pioneer of the notion of a feed, that something that was just put in front of you based on algorithmic decisions of the software company, the internet company. Um, and, and when Facebook launched that in, in September of 2006, it was a historic innovation. There were elements of it that had been practiced elsewhere, but that was probably the first real mass uh, business that, that was based entirely built around this notion of a feed. And later, of course, Twitter then came along not long after that and, and built its entire architecture on the same idea. And today, so many things we use on the internet are feed-based. So it's, it's, a, it's now a commonplace, but it was largely, I think, invented and certainly popularized by Facebook. Was there a particular event, David, in which you began to understand that Facebook was changing not just technology or the startup world, but society itself? Absolutely. Well, the reason I called 
my book, The Facebook Effect, was because I realized that there really was an effect that was unique to this ecosystem, which was that someone, anyone, if they put on their page on Facebook something that had enough novelty or interest to generate interest by others, that thing could travel virally through the system with extraordinary speed. So I actually opened my book with a description of this massive demonstration in Colombia that had happened um, in, I guess it was 2007, um, which was the world's largest demonstration at that time ever, according to some analyses, when 10 million people went into the streets to protest the guerrilla group FARC and the fact that they were holding hostages in the jungle. And, and it was all precipitated by one young man in the middle of the night creating a Facebook page that said something like, Stop FARC. And, you know, he went to bed and woke up the next morning and there were like 200 people who had, you know, joined his page or liked it. And, and, and then the, the rest is history. And, and, and that kind of thing, then only shortly after my book was published, uh, led to the Arab Spring. And, and, you know, I saw that and talked about this idea that the virality of these systems with a feed as the tool that spread information could enable organization that could often be political and social organization that was massively transformational. And I believed that that would happen. And that's why I called my book The Facebook Effect. And it did happen. Was it was that, already happening when I wrote the book. I just identified it. Was there a kind of cult of the social that... Facebook spawned and got copied, as you said, by Twitter and so many other social media startups and many evangelists and futurists and tech people. The idea that the social was uh, our savior, that it was the thing that was going to overthrow the bad guys, tyranny, create real democracy, make us happy. Well, the idea that there would have been a cult of Facebook is much more an Andrew Keane kind of way of looking at the world than a David Kirkpatrick way of looking at the world. But was there a realization that this was a transformational tool that was going to change society? Increasingly, yes. I wouldn't say it was a cult because I don't really think it was fundamentally negative or, or even, you know, it didn't have any religious elements whatsoever. It was about observing a fundamentally new set of engineered capabilities that were happening in technology and that indisputably were enabling ideas to flow more rapidly. Again, that's how I called my book The Facebook Effect. But plenty of people were honing in on this at that time. And um, it was widely understood that this was a new sort of system that would change society. I think my book coming out in 2010 helped some people understand that. I'm pleased that I was able to write about it relatively early, but um, you know, I think in retrospect, there's no question that this changed everything in, in terms of how information flowed in society. Not just though how information flowed in society, how we, so to speak, flow in society. Jeff Jarvis wrote a book called Public Parts. He was a, a strong evangelist, remains a strong evangelist of publicness. Uh, was something else going on, the idea that the social, okay, leave, leaving aside the word cult, which might be, as you say, my word, <laughs> no one ever suggested that the social could be dangerous. It was taken for granted that the more... No, that's not true. People suggested it could be dangerous. Even in my book, 
I had some cautionary statements that things could go awry. From who? Who were the great Cassandras? There weren't a lot of Cassandras at the time, uh, but uh, there was evidence that things could, you know, for example, if like in a country like Turkey or Egypt where Facebook was burgeoning, the government were to choose to interfere with these systems or use them as a form of surveillance, it was obvious that was already possible and it was starting to happen in those two countries in particular, you know, you could see that this could become sort of twisted around and turn into a tool of repression. Um, but it was so nascent that those things were happening at that time, one couldn't say, oh, this is going to happen. But Absolutely, there was even in those early years uh, a lot of worry. And again, it wasn't so much a worry about the, the fear and hate that targeted advertising encourages as we now think of it. It was more about you know what would happen if governments manipulated these systems and how were, was it changing our emotional lives? That, that was a concern even in 2000 and you know, Eight. When did you begin to have your doubts? Because you began as, if not evangelist, certainly someone who was optimistic about the Facebook effect. And I think it would be fair to say that over the last 15 years, that optimism now has become extremely pessimistic. It would be fair to say that I have become a real pessimist um, about the macro social, psychosocial implications of, of these systems, although even to this day I don't say they are fundamentally negative impacts on society. I think the problem is they have vast negative consequences that the companies, notably Facebook Meta, have chosen not to remediate and that drives me crazy and enrages me. Um, but uh, I, my, my, my view of it all changed. Um, it was changing in, in the sense that I was starting to really worry about the sheer scale of Facebook, Google, Amazon in particular, those three as, as just social business forces that were not governed by any outside uh, system. But it was Donald Trump's election, unquestionably, that changed the narrative. Uh, and, and as soon as it became obvious that the Russians and others had manipulated information on Facebook so successfully that it possibly even changed the outcome of the election, that was a societal altering realization. Uh, and I don't think that among the sort of intellectual class, Facebook has ever since been seen as something fundamentally safe. Do you think there was a, a point of, or there is a point of no return in the context of us giving Facebook our behavior for their business model, where they just know so much about us that even if we all chose to switch Facebook off, it still makes them enormously powerful? Well, yes. There was a point Unfortunately, it was probably a fairly early point, you know, at the point when Facebook was getting into the hundreds of millions of users, when we really had given up so much information about ourselves that we never again would have the capability of retracting it and controlling it unless the system was fundamentally re-architected, re which conceivably might still be able to happen. And I'm, I'm not 
arguing that we could not eventually regain control of our personal data, but some massive portion, you know, pretty much all up to now, has been captured, you know, pirated, uh, stolen from people all over the world and used for the commercial ends of systems like Facebook and Twitter and TikTok, etc. Um, so people did not realize the risks when they started using social media. That is unquestionable. You've said to me on a number of occasions that you think Facebook is or at least was the most profitable company in history. When did the, the economic miracle start, David? Was it in 2011, 2012, perhaps associated with the IPO? When was the IPO? The IPO was in 2012. Um, I would say, you know, the Facebook, we didn't know how profitable Facebook was until the IPO because they didn't publish their numbers. We knew it was very profitable. But, you know, it was not long after the IPO, despite the fact that the stock came out at like 33 and it went down to 17 before it rebounded in the first few months after the IPO. And this was because Facebook didn't really understand mobile and, and it was widely criticized for not really being a mobile system, but Zuckerberg quickly fixed that. Um, so if the IPO was in 2012, I would say by 2014, it was becoming one of the most profitable companies in the history of capitalism on a per dollar of revenue basis. Uh, and it, it really was for much of the next eight years or so, by some measures, the most profitable public company in the history of capitalism. Because the, the dollars of profit they got for every dollar that an advertiser spent on their system was I mean, it was some, I think it was like 50% at some points. It was well in the 40%, you know, net profit. I mean, most companies are really lucky to have a net profit of 20%. In fact, that's not even that common, you know, uh, after taxes and everything. But Facebook had net profits that were unheard of. Google was also having very high net profits, but not as high as Facebook. Facebook's business model was uniquely profitable. Is there something Greek, something classical about maybe not the Facebook tragedy, but the fall of Facebook, the Icarus effect that well, flew too close to the sun. You've, you've mentioned the election of Trump. There was, of course, Brexit and then all the revelations about Facebook. Yeah, Brexit is a big deal. How quickly did public, the public view of, of Facebook change? Was it between, what, 2015, 2016, 2017? I mean, to the degree that there's a Greek tragedy element, I don't think of it so much as being about Facebook per se, per se as about Zuckerberg himself. And to me, um, the wealth that he began to accrue once Facebook was public and had this extraordinary profitability, and he began to be worth tens of billions of dollars when he was still in his early 30s, or maybe still in his late 20s when it started, um, I think that changed him. And uh, I think it, lo it, it, it meant that he, he lost his ability to think in a sort of centered, ethical way to the degree he had that before. And I think he did have some of that before. But I, I think, you know, Wall Street also is an evil beast. 
and Wall Street will force this on almost anybody unless they have a very strong character and are capable of resisting and have extremely good communications <laughs> advisors, etc. You know, Wall Street doesn't care what you do so long as it's profitable. And if it's extremely profitable and is growing extremely fast, all Wall Street cares about is that that continue. And that was a message that was so powerfully impounded upon Zuckerberg that he kind of absorbed it and just basically began acting accordingly. And, and I think that is what led him to oversee, overlook you know, vast harms. I mean, uh, Cambridge Analytica is just a well-known chain of events, but it was one of many, many, many things like that that happened that just sort of happened because it wasn't a priority to stop things like that from happening because making more money and growth, growth above all, was what the company was about. It was not about cautious mitigation of societal harms or even consideration of societal harms. It was about growing. And when you think only about growth in that sort of a situation, you overlook a lot of tragically serious things. So in that sense, our age of social media for the first quarter of the 21st century uh, is an age of greed, of short-sightedness. Is that fair? Yes. I think our, you know, the history of social media is to some extent a history of greed. Now, I don't make the same kind of statements about everyone. Like, Jack Dorsey is not the same kind of greedy, heedless capitalist that Zuckerberg is, in my opinion. I think Jack Dorsey has a very strong set of other motives that are more societal. I don't think he's always been able to act upon them as, as well as he might have. But uh, I really think that Zuckerberg, at a certain point, cast off all concern for what anybody thought except Wall Street, in effect. And I think that was where the real harm emerged. Um, there aren't too many others that I think made that wholesale of a, of a cynical shift, sadly. Or happily, I guess happy there weren't more, but it's very sad that that happened to him. And this kid you met in 2006, you were, you, uh, you regretted when you first saw him how young he was, and now he's become one of the wealthiest, most, uh, most famous, uh, and most controversial figures in the world. Do you think he's changed over the last almost 20, uh, well, certainly 20, almost 20 years since you met him? No, I do think Zuckerberg has changed. I think he's changed a lot to become much more concerned about his wealth and his power and the, the wealth and power of his company uh, than about making the world more open and connected, which was his stated goal from the beginning and was an attractive goal. Um, he still tells himself that he's about the same ethos but in reality, his behavior speaks otherwise. And there's no question, I, I can't explain it any other way than to say that the wealth distorted his values and his judgment. And I, I think that's a major change. Is the crisis of social media, David, also the crisis of democracy? And the reason why we see authoritarianism blossom, if that's the right word, around the world? Well, sadly, um, the rise of authoritarianism in recent decades, last decade, can very closely be charted with the rise of not just social media, but specifically Facebook in those countries. Philippines, Hungary, Poland, Brazil, uh, 
Turkey. Uh, there's so many countries where India, the, the, the government leaders pr became expert manipulators of disinformation on not just social media, but Facebook. They used other platforms as well, but Facebook in almost every country was the predominant information system of the country. And it was not being governed in such a way that would prevent abuse. And that, in my opinion, is one of the, if not the single greatest reason for the sudden rise in, in the last few years of this panoply of authoritarians in many of those countries. Uh, at the moment, there seems to be a little bit of a counter trend, which is great, but the world has been seriously harmed. Democracy has been seriously undermined by the success of social media, there's no question, and by the success of Facebook. And our mutual friend Maria Ressa in the Philippines has done as good and as brave a job as, as, as linking Facebook with the crisis of authoritarianism as anyone, but there are other brave souls in Russia in Turkey, in Israel, in the United States who have made the same point. Sure, I think the, the, the democratic opposition in all of these countries recognizes that, that the manipulation of social media and Facebook in particular has been a serious problem for their country and in many cases they've spoken out against that and but if the autocrats have control of the media as they do, then it doesn't even matter what the opponents think and say. Uh, and, and, and again, it, it was a corporate business decision of Facebook to allow a lot of that to happen. You talked earlier, David, about the way in which this was changing our sense of who we were, perhaps rewiring our brains. In the 2020s, increasingly people are talking about an age of anxiety, particularly amongst young people. Do you think there's a connection between this rise of social media and this pandemic of anxiety, of mental illness that has afflicted people uh, around the world? Well, yes, I would agree there is an epidemic of anxiety and, 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 and discomfort that afflicts the world. And I absolutely think that social media and technology and the internet are deeply in, intertwined with that, uh, I'd say in two fundamental ways. Uh, the first one, which I think is what you're most interested in, is that because social media is all about bragging, uh, exhibitionism, uh, and, and, and narcissism, uh, it, it tends to reinforce those capabilities in, in people and make them think that that's the way they're supposed to act and that has a lot of very harmful mental effects. But I also think there's an issue with just the sheer pace of life that the t technologization of our environment has engendered and that our metabolisms are not always prepared or definitely not prepared as a species for the speed of information dispersal and and, and especially when it, that information is coming at us with extraordinary speed in a way that is manipulated and abused by the purveyors, um, we aren't really good at dealing with that. And that, that harms us emotionally. I totally believe that. Final question, David. You've been wonderfully patient and generous, as always, with your time. Um, some people suggest that in 2023, this explosion of chat, GPT, and AI marks the end of the social media age. Other people see 
the AI age of, of chat GPT are being built on social. Is there, is there a connection between social media and chat GPT? Where is chat GPT getting its intelligence about humans from? That's a very good question and one not often enough asked, Andrew. I think it is true that ChatGPT and, and generative AI systems right, broadly would not be able to mimic the sound of a human voice nearly so well had they not been able to be trained on these vast social media systems that, that are so humongous all over the internet and in many cases quite readily accessible for you know, digestion by massive internet databases. So, yes, that's where they are learning a lot of the subtlety of human speech and, and, and human attitudes that they then can mimic in their, you know, algorithmically generated texts. So, um, I, I don't think that the end of social media is upon us, sadly, just because AI is coming on so strong. But it, it is going to tremendously change social media, and I also, I'm afraid, most of all, it will just continue this acceleration of the pace of information distribution and abuse that is so harmful in society. I think, on the other hand, there will be plenty of benefits, too. And we can't deny that there will be a lot of benefits as well as harms, but that's sort of been true of every era of tech.